So, um, do turn to Luke chapter 13, which is where we've got to. We are in a long-running series on the book of Luke. We've been at it since last summer, and we'll continue to the coming end of the coming summer. Last week, what did Mike Beaumont speak about? Don't worry. Uh, I know his title, and I wasn't even staying in for it. And I was told it was really good and memorable. How to be rich. There we are. I think that is what he talked about. And uh, one of the things that I know he specifically mentioned was around, uh, amongst, I don't know everything that he talked about, but um, part of it was giving to the church. And one of, we just did the church membership course, Partnering for Purpose, recently. And as part of that, I uh, always ask the question of everyone, what have you most enjoyed about OCC and what have you found most difficult? because we're trying to be honest with one another. And one of the things that came out very clearly this time that people joining the church find really difficult is knowing how to give us money. So I'm very sorry about that, and we'll try to redress it. There should be this morning on the welcome desk uh, some forms that you can fill in for regular giving. And since we're going through this series on the book of Luke, and last week got us thinking, got you thinking about money, Um, I wanted to make sure that you knew that those forms are there. Um, We aren't, we don't have enough time to do every single verse going through the book of Luke um, because it would take us more than a year to do so. And so this morning we're skipping a little bit. We're skipping over uh, some bits in chapter 12 where Jesus talked about getting ready for his second coming, about division that he would bring, about settling debts, about repenting and not feeling superior, and about a barren tree that should be given just a little bit longer to see if it would bear fruit before being torn down. That's what we've missed. You can read it for yourself. You can dig into it for yourself. But this morning we're starting at the beginning Not not even at the beginning of chapter 13, but rather chapter 13 and verse 10. And my title for this morning morning is Move In. Move In Today. And I hope you'll see why I've chosen that as a title as we get through this passage. We're starting in verse 10 and reading right through to the end of the chapter. Although I'm going to pause after a few verses and suggest that we pray uh, after just a few verses. Because it says this, On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman who was there had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and couldn't straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward And said to her, woman, you're set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. This is the point to pause. Because last week, as part of our time together, I uh, invited everyone who was sick in any way to raise a hand and uh, invited everyone around to pray for those who are sick. And what I'd like to do right now is two things. 
Uh, one in just a moment is to repeat that and say, let's keep on praying for the sick. Wouldn't it be daft for us to read a scripture about Jesus joining with the people of God on their day of worship and healing them and for us not to pray? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be a daft thing? So we must pray in just a moment. For now, let's carry on reading through Luke chapter 13, because the Pharisees did not respond positively to what Jesus did. Indignant, it says in verse 14. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, there are six days for work. So come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, you hypocrite. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water, which is something that could be considered work? Then shouldn't this woman, a daughter of Abraham whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her. When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated. But the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. And then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. Again he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And he said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and won't be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, You will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. And then you'll say, but we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. And he'll reply, I don't know you or where you come from, away from me, all you evildoers. And there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from the east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first. And first, who will be last? And at that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. We we don't know, by the way, what their motive was. We don't really know whether Herod at this point was after killing Jesus. 
whether the Pharisees were warning him of a real plot or whether this was just a way of trying to move him on. Jesus replied, go tell that fox, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow and on the third day I'll reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. It's worth just pausing to say these things about today, tomorrow, third day, today, tomorrow, next day might ring, have a ring of them about Jesus' death and the third day he rose again. But um, whilst there's been a little bit of debate about quite what those things mean, it seems to be this. This is the most, uh, the best way of reading it, according to the scholars, that um, Jesus was heading towards Jerusalem. Someone talks about the politicians in Jerusalem and warn him away from Jerusalem. And Jesus effectively says, look, I'm not going to stop. This, this, these phrases, today, tomorrow, and so on, just mean I'm going to keep going for a bit longer. He seems to be saying, I'm not going to stop, and I'm not going to run away from the government. I'm going to carry on for a bit longer, and indeed I'll carry on until I finish in Jerusalem. That's where it's headed. He just states confidently that he's going to keep going and doing what he knows he should do. And then verse 34, he has this lament. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a children gathers her chicks under her wings, but you weren't willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he, who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that last verse, verse 35, again has an echo in it, and it might remind you of the day when Jesus came in in triumph to the city of Jerusalem. People laying down their cloaks, waving palm trees, crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet, that can't be what this, the last verse refers to. It can't be because in Matthew's gospel, this same teaching of Jesus comes after that entry into Jerusalem, what's called the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, after he's experienced that welcome, after the crowds have said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus repeats this teaching, Matthew 23 and verse 39, saying, you won't see me again until this happens. And so he's made it clear there that this refers to something else. It refers to another visit, another uh, coming, in fact, to what we call the second coming. So this, this chapter finishes with a reference to the cosmic end, to the second coming. And it points us towards seeing the whole chapter as really about the big picture. If we go back to where we started in verse 10, there are three different ways in which Jesus shows that God is better than you might think and that his kingdom is growing beyond what you might expect. I didn't know, unless I... 
um, was sent an email about it, which I might have done, but I didn't know that the students were going to be looking at John 10 and abundant life this week. But in John's gospel, John very rarely uses the phrase the kingdom of God. It's there in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John very rarely uses the phrase the kingdom of God. And he has another phrase that he uses in its place. Well, a couple of phrases, one of which is eternal life, and the other is abundant life. It's the same thing. The kingdom of God is about abundant life for all eternity. And so the first thing that we see as Jesus shows how the kingdom of God is better than you think is this healing He brings abundant life, and I've put on the slide here, it bursts onto the scene. We're reminded of Jesus' teaching about wine and wineskins, where new wine that comes, if it were to be put into old wineskins, would cause them to burst. It has a power in it, the abundant life of Christ has a power in it to break through existing expectations. It has a power to break through the routines and the habits and the things that we think ought to happen because they've always happened that way. It has a power to turn gray to silver, as we've heard this morning. And of course, that's what's happening around the world. I don't know how much you've heard of the stories of the amazing growth of Uh, the Church of Christ in North Africa and amongst Muslim peoples in various places. The gospel is going out like wildfire, and it does things beyond what you'd expect. The statistics that we hear back are that something like 25% of those converted are imams in charge of religious life. In the community, you think, I first read that figure and I thought, that's crazy. And then... I turn back to the Gospels and I think, well, it was all, you read again and again and again. The people were astonished. There's this regular experience on encountering Jesus of astonishment as his abundant life comes. And it does more than we ever thought was possible. In some cases, more than we thought was appropriate. His grace is bigger. His abundant life bursts onto the scene. And then there are these two parables of the mustard seed, which is really small, and the yeast. And the clear point of the parable of the mustard seed is that this this kingdom of God, this abundant life, is just a lot bigger than you'd think. This tiny seed grows to a tree that can be nine feet tall. And the thing about seeds is that all of that growth was already wrapped up inside it. That was always its nature. That's what the parable of the mustard seed tells us. It's not just that randomly, occasionally, some bits and pieces of the kingdom of God grow, but rather the very nature of the abundant life of God is it's got this growth in it. That's what it's got. It's the nature of it. It's its DNA, if you like, to grow abundantly. And so when we cast our minds elsewhere in the world, we think of the amazing growth of the church in China in recent years. Tens of millions, some would say a hundred million people born again. That's significantly more than every single person on these sceptered isles where we live, born again in the last generation. It gets bigger than you'd think. 
And then the third thing about this dough, I couldn't find a picture with enough dough in it. Because although it says in the NIV that I read um, a large amount of flour, you've probably got a footnote that tells you just quite how much it was. It's translated as 22 litres into metric. And one of the commentaries that I read calculated that that would be enough to feed 150 people. So there's quite a, quite a good chunk of bread, a large amount. And the thing about yeast is you only need to put in a little bit, and because it's alive, it grows and it multiplies, and all you need to do is give it enough time and it will work its way all the way through. It eats up the dough as it goes. It finds its nutrient in the dough and fills it. Nepal is in our minds this morning. I don't know if any of you have seen the news or have missed the news about the earthquake there. Um, I've been glad to hear that people that personally I know in Nepal have been um, kept safe during the earthquake that took place yesterday. But there are many who haven't been, and we need to pray. I hope that that news has already uh, turned you to prayer. We need to keep praying for Nepal. When I was there a few years ago, the most astonishing thing that I saw, and I've mentioned it whilst preaching before, was a Yellow Pages directory. It's printed on yellow paper. And it was a list, not just of church members, but of pastors of churches leading individual congregations and the address for the church, bearing in mind that 50 years ago there were about five followers of Christ in Nepal. And now, this yellow pages is about this thick, page after page after page after page of hundreds and thousands of lists of local churches. This yeast gets into everything. And as I looked through this list of yellow, I'm not an expert in Nepali geography, but it seems to me like there was now a church everywhere. Certainly in some regions of Nepal, you couldn't find a village where there's not someone that's gone with the gospel. And most of them have got churches of people who found faith in Jesus as the yeast of the kingdom. The gospel has gone out. So here we go. There's three different ways in which Jesus says this abundant life is really abundant. <laughs> it's super abundant. It bursts in beyond what you'd expect. It grows bigger than you think and it touches everything. And so that's great. Um, but I have a question in my mind that it raises. And I'm pleased that it was there in the first century too. Verse 23. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Just take a moment for that to sink in. Because Jesus just said, it's growing, it's big, it's abundant, it's touching everything, taking over the world, changing everything. And someone goes, it's like a little person that goes, uh, hang on a minute. But, uh, but are only a few going to be saved? Now, if the whole of Israel was taken up with this gospel of the kingdom and new birth was bursting out everywhere, you wouldn't ask that question, would you? Because it would already have been answered. If already many had been saved, 
you wouldn't ask the question, but is is it only going to be a few then? This is a question asked by someone, we don't know who it was, but asked by someone who saw a mismatch. Saw a mismatch between the teaching and the vision and the... Yeah, there's only a few of us that aren't there. And so this is, this is the question, as I would phrase it for us today. Why is the church so small then? If the kingdom of Christ is so big, why is the church so small? I don't know if you ever ask yourself that question. In Jesus' time, most of the Jews expected that pretty much all Jews would be saved and maybe a few Gentiles. So they had higher expectations than Jesus was fulfilling. Question for us today is, if the kingdom of Christ is so big, why is the church of Christ so small, at least where we are? It's great to hear about Nepal. It's great to hear about China. It's great to hear about different places in the world where it wouldn't occur to them to ask this question because they see people born again on a weekly basis and the numbers are ever growing. But, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Why is the church so small then, if what you're saying is true? On Good Friday, Giles Fraser, who was actually the chaplain at Wadham just after I was a student there, wrote an article in The Guardian entitled, Christianity, when properly understood, is a religion of losers. It was a reflection on Good Friday. And he wrote this, amongst other things. The true, the true king is crowned with mockery and thorns, not with gold and ermine. So, a successful priest ought to be hated rather than fated, and a church is at its best when it fails. And maybe that's an appropriate reflection on Good Friday when the Lord of all is hung on a cross and being mocked. But it won't do for any time after Easter Sunday because the resurrection of Christ completes the story of the work that Jesus completed. He didn't just die. If the story had ended with Jesus in the grave, If we were one of those Christians, so-called, who deny the resurrection, then Giles Fraser's words would be enough. Jesus sets an example of failure for us to follow. But in fact, he defeated death. In fact, as we sang this morning, Jesus is alive. And the whole point of Christianity is that there is triumph over death and despair and sin and sickness and all that would hold us back, and it's come through Christ. That's the truth. So here comes the question again. What can we really expect? Great vision, great words, but what can we really expect to happen? Now, at this point, Jesus answers the question. Only... He doesn't really answer the question. He just says something else altogether. 
In verse 24, so in verse 23, someone says, Lord, are only a few, few going to be saved then? What should we expect really? I mean, nice talk, but, but what should we expect really? And Jesus says, verse 24, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. That's his answer. Make every effort. To, I've got a picture of a narrow door. Hmm. Make every effort enter through the narrow door. Now, if there were three ways in this chapter in which Jesus said this abundant life is really abundant, I'm going to say there are two things I'd like to highlight out of this. And what they are are two errors, two um, mistaken ways that this teaching is sometimes received. Here's the first one. The first one responds to this as if Jesus was teaching us to earn our way in. Because not only in verse 24 does he say, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, but in verse 27, when he sums up the people who are outside, he says, away from me, all you evildoers. And so we can easily get the impression that the way this works is that there were some people who'd worked hard enough, who'd made enough effort to smarten themselves up enough that they were allowed in past the bouncers on the door. And there were others who were just still so rubbish and sinful and doing so much evil that they had, they had to stay outside. But that's not how we should understand this. That's not what Jesus is saying. This is not about making ourselves good enough to get close to Jesus because Jesus already had allowed people close to him. As it says here, people would respond in verse 26 saying, but we ate and drank with you. They said, but we've already been close to you. There was never a problem for people getting close to Jesus. People did not have to smarten themselves up before getting close to Jesus. And as it, we read towards the end of the chapter in verse 34, I've, Jesus says, how, and he says this to people that kill prophets and stone apostles, those sent to them, to the murderers of God's heroes, to people like Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul, Jesus says, I have longed to gather you. Like a, a hen would gather her chicks. I've, I've longed to gather you. There's no question of needing to smarten ourselves up to get close to Jesus. Now, in, uh, in verse 14, which is one of the bits we're skipping over uh, as we take a little bit of a canter through this portion of Luke, there is another parable about a banquet about invitations, about doors being opened and closed. I'm going to read that in Luke 14 and from verse 16. Jesus tells this parable, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who'd been invited, come, everything's now ready, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. And still another said, I've just got married, so I can't come. And the servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry 
and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So it's made clear for us that there is a generous invitation to come in. And the issue here is not how smart people are, how clean people are, but an attitude of heart. The word that's interpreted in verse 24, make every effort, means be wholehearted. Make a choice to give yourself to this thing. The people outside were called evildoers. But actually, there were plenty of people inside, there will be plenty of people inside, who likewise have done evil things. The difference is not who's more righteous and who is more evil in their actions, but rather that those who are inside have accepted the offer of being made clean, have accepted the offer of being forgiven. If people remain outside, it's not because they've committed the worst sins, but just because they've ignored the invitation. So let's not make the mistake of thinking that we have to earn our way in. Here's another thing. Another error, perhaps a little bit more common today, another error is to think that everyone gets in. This picture is a depiction of the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. The Catholic doctrine of purgatory teaches that those people who died as Christians, but having lived bad lives, they have to take time after death to be cleansed before entering heaven. So people who are Christians, lived bad lives, will end up in heaven, but they're not quite clean enough yet. They have to go through a process of cleansing called purgatory, going round and round, having stuff done until they're finally fit for heaven. Some people today have taken this idea of purgatory and extended it to all people so that it applies not just to those who are Christians in this life, but to all people. The word that is used to describe that belief is universalism, because it says that salvation will end up touching everybody, including everybody, universal salvation, universalism. There's a book written a few years ago called The Evangelical Universalist, which says that after people find themselves in hell, they will continue to have a choice to repent and faced with the reality of hell and having sight of heaven everyone will eventually make the choice to repent. And so everyone will eventually enter heaven. Everyone gets in in the end. More famous, that book, The Evangelical Universalist, has probably not been read by quite so many people. There's another book which is 
been much more widely bought, which is Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, which you may have come across, which, because it's written by Rob Bell and with his writing style, he's nothing like as clear in making, you know, putting in black and white what he really believes. But he asks a bunch of questions that take the reader in the same direction to think that when everything's said and done, love wins and everyone will find themselves gathered under Jesus' wings in heaven. The thing is, though, that Jesus says, it's here in verse 25, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading. That there is a time when, I have a picture of some closed doors, there will come a time when the doors are closed. Very soberly, Jesus teaches that it's possible to end up being permanently excluded. The door will be closed. That's why elsewhere, Jesus says that if if your eye or your hand or whatever part of your body causes you to sin, it's better just to get rid of it and enter the next life without it than to hang on to it and end up in hell, that is excluded permanently. Better to pluck your eye out than to miss out on the eternal, abundant life. So the question in verse 23 is, so are only a few people going to be saved? If the life of Christ is so abundant, why, why aren't there more people flocking into into the church and bowing the knee, making Christ Lord in their lives right here and now. Jesus' answer cuts across that. And he simply says, make every effort to enter the narrow door. I don't know how many of you saw this debate a few weeks ago. I have to say that um, ahead of the general election, I have got a little bit obsessed with all of the polls and what do people think is going to happen and, dearie me, who's going to form a coalition with who and how's it all going to work and how's our country going to end up being run and what difference might that make for our lives, for my life. I've got a little bit caught up in that. I see a couple of people smiling like maybe I'm not alone in my indulgence. Um, But here we are. Um, Here's my vote. We have organised a postal vote. I have committed my vote already it's in here I need to put it in the post box or it won't count (laughs) Um, but at a certain point all of the speculation and all of the second guessing and all of the so how's that going to work and how much and what are the numbers at a certain point it gets reduced down to a personal choice and that's what Jesus is doing here Someone comes with this speculative question. So how's it all going to work? And Jesus says, make a choice. Just as we all need to make a choice in the next 12 days. Is it that the big picture doesn't matter? Is it that the numbers don't matter? No, they, they do matter. But Jesus approaches us differently and says, make a choice, make every effort 
Be wholehearted, come close to me. Which brings us back to where I started with this picture and my title for this morning, Move In. I'm going to turn to that chapter in John's Gospel that the students will be looking at this term, where Jesus says this about himself, verse 9, I am the gate. I am the gate. In Luke's Gospel, he says, there's a narrow door, enter through the narrow door. In John's Gospel, Jesus goes further and says, I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus has come to give us that abundant life. And we can ask, how does it all work? How many people are going to be touched through it? What is the future of our nation? And Jesus says very simply, I'm the gate, come to me. I'm the gate, come to me. Whatever abundant life there is to be found, it lies on the other side of the gate. That picture of the gate for the fold of the sheep speaks of going in for security and coming out for feeding. And Jesus is our gateway both ways round. He is the gate through whom we enter into secure salvation, kept safe for all eternity, and he's the gate that we go through to find abundance of life, to be fed with all the provision that he has for us. And so there's a personal choice for each of us to make. We're invited today, each one of us, to enter through the narrow door, to come through Jesus into all that he promises for us. What does it mean? What does it mean to move in today to Jesus? Well, there's a number of different ways in which Jesus promises to make himself known to us. One of those is the church. Jesus says, as I prayed earlier, where two or three are gathered, I'm there. So if we want to move closer to Jesus, one of the things we need to think about is our relationship with his people. And uh, for some people, it might just be a really simple thing that God wants to, you to make a choice to get closer. Maybe... Uh, you've been holding back from really getting to know people in the church. Maybe you've never been into the home of someone else who's in the church, and that's something that could change. And you could find a new measure of life in Christ by entering more deeply into fellowship. Just wonder whether next time we're here, not next Sunday, um, I don't know, if you just made a choice to sit one row further forward than you normally do, unless you already sit on the front row. But just some, there must be some practical way of responding, whether it's joining a group, going into someone's home, or changing your attitude to what we do when we're all together by just coming a little bit further forward. There's opportunity in the church to move in, not to stay at a fixed distance, but to move in. We know that we meet Jesus through reading his word, through reading the Bible too. One way to move in is to pick our Bibles up and to start to read them afresh. We experience God's presence as we worship. 
And we can move in by taking time in our week to worship him, come close to him in prayer. Perhaps in prayer, more than anything else, we come close to God and we can give ourselves time to pray. We looked at different spiritual disciplines, didn't we, before Easter? Fasting and prayer and worship and such like. And we can remind ourselves of those things and give ourselves to them. And then lastly, God is at work in the world. We don't have to retreat from the world to find God, but he's at work all around us. And so we can find ourselves closer to God by lifting our eyes, whether we're talking about the streets on which we live or the places where we work. We can lift our eyes, see what God's doing around us and join in. And in that too, we can move in closer, not standing at a distance from God's work in the world, but being his companions in the kingdom, his companions in the abundant life that he promises us. So there we are, a simple question at the end of it all. How will you move in closer? How will you step into Jesus today? I'm going to stop there, give a couple of minutes quiet in which we can reflect on that. And um, I pray that God would speak to us about some specific things that can shift as we make choices to move in. And then Dan's going to lead us in breaking bread.